0: My name's Ed Vasey and welcome to The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media, my new podcast with the requisite tinkly piano music. Many years ago, I was the Tech Minister in the David Cameron government. I served him for six years and I spent a lot of time both with big tech, inward investors like Facebook and Google, and startups and British companies that were gaining traction and going on to be unicorns. It was a fascinating time and I like to think I gained a lot of insight into the tech community in the UK and in Europe, and indeed in the US. But the thing that really fascinated me, obviously, as a politician, was the nexus between policy and tech. In one way, that's straightforward. That's what should politicians do about potentially regulating tech companies? And we dipped our toe in the water there. And sometimes, to mix my metaphors, got our fingers burnt. But also, now, technology is disrupting everything. It's disrupting every aspect of business but it's also disrupting every aspect of our way of life and therefore it's disrupting and changing policy. It's throwing up big questions that it brings about these changes. What is going to happen to education? What's going to happen to transport? What's going to happen to government services? What's going to happen to health? What are we going to do about regulations? What's going to change in the workplace and employment regulation? How is it going to affect economic policy? Almost anything you think about now as a politician has a tech aspect to it. And I want to explore over the next weeks and months, uh, talking to people who may not be household names, but will know a lot about the subject, uh, the implications of new technology and how it's changing uh, our policy environment and how the politicians need to respond. My first guest is Benedict Evans, who was an analyst with Andreessen Horowitz, and has recently returned from San Francisco to live in London. During the podcast, I describe him as a cross between Mary Meeker, the famous internet uh, guru and analyst, and a TED conference. He's a clear thinker who thinks about the big issues uh, and the small issues. He thinks about whether or not video conference facilities are any good, right through to how on earth you should approach the regulation of Facebook. Uh, He's an iconoclast. An original thinker is counterintuitive and I really hope you enjoy the next 40 minutes or so. I just want you to briefly, because I've obviously tried to describe your career, but I want to know how Benedict Evans has 165,000 subscribers to his newsletter and 300,000-odd Twitter followers, when I've only managed 40,000 Twitter followers? What's, What's your secret?
1: Ah, uh, well, I started it earlier, simple answer. It's, actually, it's about 140,000 newsletter subscribers, actually. Um, I, started <laughs> at the be- I started at the beginning of 2013. Um, and that was at that point, newsletters, had, I mean, newsletters had been a thing probably before the web. I mean, Craigslist started as a newsletter. After all, that's that's what list comes from. Um, but then there's been a kind of a whole resurgence of newsletters in the last couple of years. Um, I mean, I started it because I had lunch with a friend who is another equity analyst, and I was telling him about a bunch of various things that he hadn't seen because he was too busy in his job. And he said, you should start a newsletter. And in, in equity research, newsletters are like a normal thing. They're just an easy thing to churn out once a week or once a month. Um, but at that time, they hadn't kind of come back yet. And so I, you know, I had a social media presence. And so I threw the newsletter up in a couple of days. And it's grown pretty much a straight line ever since. I mean, now growing about two, 2,000 a month net, I suppose. Um, which is interesting. It's, it's slightly interesting to me that it isn't a curve. You would think, like, more followers means, you know, more subscribers means more forwards means more subscribers, but it doesn't seem to work like that. Um, but it grows about the same amount everywhere, every, every, every month. Um, And I always slightly have imposter syndrome when I send it out, because I think surely most people have seen all of this. But of course, most people are too busy doing their actual job, A, to have sort of kept track of what was going on in this sector, or B, they're not in this sector. So they kind of want someone from inside this world to have a look at it, inside tech to have a look at it. Or they're not, you know, and they're not getting the kind of the opinion that I add on top of it. So I have about a 50% open rate, but only about 20% of people actually click on the links. So most people are really getting it for my summaries of why this is important or interesting. Um, so, so that's sort of, that's one answer. I think the other answer is, and to, to the, sort of speaking to the point of why newsletters have exploded, um, blogging sort of got killed by social. Um, blogging went to Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Yeah. And, but then there's a distribution question of like, well, how would you, on oh, an discovery and a reach question of, how would I remember what I want to read? How would I go back and find that stuff again? And blogging had RSS, but RSS never really worked, and um, it was never like a consumer thing. Um, email you sign up, and it just kind of comes to you. So it's a different. It's a sort of a, a. It's it's a way of subscribing to the site and not having to bookmark it and go to all of those bookmarks. Um, and it's also, as I said, it's a resurgence of blogging, which had kind of gone away and is now coming back. Whatever it is, people seem to like it. People seem to find it useful. I was
0: thinking about describing you as a sort of cross between Mary Meeker and a TED conference, a walking, talking TED conference. But what I like about your Twitter feed in particular is you have these odd fetishes. And one is a fetish that I share, which is obsessing about video conferencing. And video conferencing is obviously for people like us, if I can put it in that ghastly way, uh, office workers has become the thing of the pandemic. What are the things you hate about video conferencing? How can we make it better? Because this is going to be a thing now.
1: Yeah, um, well, two, two, two things. I mean, one is when a part of my sort of analytic process is I tweet about what I'm thinking about, and I kind of think and think and think and post and post and post. And then I write the long essay on my on my website and publish it. And then I stop thinking about it by launch and go on to something else. <laughs> so you would sort of see my, obs- what my obsession. What, it is, what, what is the puzzle I'm trying to work out what I think about? Um, and right now, that's video conferencing. But you know, six months ago, it was regulation, and to a considerable extent, it is now. Um, you know, and before that, maybe machine learning or computer vision or something um, discovery. So there's various different things that I'm trying to work out. So that's sort of what you're one of the aspects you're seeing on, on, on in my my Twitter. Um, I think so. Several observations here. One of them is like video calling was a thing before the internet and it was staggeringly expensive and no one had it. And then we all got locked down and we suddenly kind of realized we had high definition video conferencing equipment on all of our desks without quite realizing, without knowing. Without anyone, we, some people used it, but most people didn't use it. And so this is the thing you've seen with the politics or news broadcasts or whatever it is. Everybody has video calling now, without anyone quite realizing that, that that was the case. And five years ago, it wouldn't have been. So you know, every journalist can interview people by by video call, which you know, wasn't the case five years ago. Um, second observation: um, I think there's a sort of this great phrase in technology which is skeuomorphism, and skeuomorphism is when you make the calendar app look like it's made out of leather, or <laughs> yeah. when. You know, it's you kind of excessively <coughs> replicate the physical object while, while not really paying attention to the yes. actual purpose that you're trying to achieve <laughs> with this thing. And so I think, you know, there's this old joke, um, you know, that meeting could have been a call and that call could have been an email. And I think we've the sort of step we've all jumped. I mean, sort of much higher high level point about, about virus and COVID and lockdown. We've all basically jumped into a foxhole. And sort of step one is, you know, pulling the twigs out of our hair and kind of standing up and working out where it's dry and working out what the hell's going on. And step two is, okay we're (laughs) going to be in here for six months. So, well, how do we get on with stuff? And then maybe step three is, right, well, then can we actually do business from here as opposed to just like getting our email and like connecting our systems? And so part of that has been all the things that were going to be coffees or meetings or team stand ups or whatever it is get turned into Zoom calls, like cabinet meeting gets turned into a Zoom call.
0: It's interesting. I, we, we did an interview with uh, Charlie Muirhead, the founder of COGX, who were going virtual. Yeah. Uh, and uh, th- those are exactly the issues we discussed, the kind of networking and so on. But it's interesting what you say about video conferencing. I remember telling David Cameron in 2010 that he should build a video conference room in Downing Street and <clears throat> parade his green credentials by doing visits to countries virtually on uh, video conferencing. But it is interesting that... In this uh, pandemic, you know we've all had FaceTime. I, I never use FaceTime, and I never before the pandemic uh, bothered to suggest to anyone I was going to go and have a coffee with, well, actually, let's do this as a video call. But one thing I'm intrigued by in terms of um, you thinking deeply about this is why has Zoom broken through, considering we had FaceTime and all the big players like Microsoft, et cetera, provide these tools? Why have why we why become the Zoom generation?
1: Um, so I think the best analogy I can think of here is Dropbox. And so there's a famous, well, famous in Silicon Valley story that when Drew Houston was was, was mm. setting up Dropbox, he went all around the valley and everybody said, But there's hundreds of these things. And he said, Yes, but which one do you use? And, you know, yes, there were hundreds of file syncing apps of various kinds, but none of them worked none of them were invisible the way Dropbox became invisible. And I think the same thing for Zoom. I mean, there's a sort of a, a much higher level point that one could get into later, which is video itself is a commodity. There was a time 20 years ago when it was really hardcore technology and expensive and difficult. Now video is a technology. I was just, on, just talking to somebody earlier. There are now something like 60 companies doing some kind of online video, stream video call, video conferencing thing. The video itself is nothing. It's trivial. I mean, it's, you know, it's very hard, but it's trivial. It's a commodity. The question is the wrapper. What do you put around it and how do you get into it? It's just yeah. a link. Yeah. It works. You don't have to install anything. You don't have to sign in. You don't have to know anything. You just click on the thing and it just works. Um, I mean, there's a famous story, even yeah. Steve Jobs at Apple, like, at Apple like 15 years ago when they were working on video editing software, which became iMovie. And they had this whole presentation of this is all the stuff it'll do, and this is the button, and it'll have this feature and that feature. And Steve Jobs says, shut up. Goes to a whiteboard, he draws a box. Now, that's the window, he draws a circle. That's the button that says, make video. That's what it should do. And obviously it's not actually quite that easy, but it's yeah, you know, that's kind of what Zoom did. And then you go I mean a sort of particular thing with, with, with Google Hangouts, like the the website needs you to sign in, or maybe it doesn't, and it's never quite clear. And the app doesn't let you join without signing in, but then maybe the website does. And you can invite people from outside your organization, but then they can't join unless they ask. But the only person they can ask is the person who set up the meeting, and the person who set up the meeting is to PA it, and they've gone out for coffee, and they weren't going to be on the call. And it's like, the video bit is great, <laughs> but it's all of the stuff around <laughs> the video that's that's the difficult part the same thing i mean i you know you can kind of think about this in different ways the other kind of aspect of this is like there's an awful lot of companies thinking well it's going to it's video but for doctors and so then what do you build around that that a doctor needs or what do you build around that that the school needs so you need to be able to mute everyone you need to be able to yeah. track attention or you need to be able to see if the app's in the foreground or in the background. And so what kinds of things do you need around the video? And that, I think, is a long way of answering the question, but I think that's what, what, what Zoom have really nailed.
0: So we've talked about video conferences, we've talked about virtual conferences, and we've talked about tech trends. But I'd also like to ask you a bit about regulation, where I think to a certain extent, I hope I'm not um, putting words into your mouth, you take a slightly counterintuitive view of which I welcome. I think that if you would sum up where we are on the regulation debate at the moment, I would call it the looting debate. I thought of that all by myself. I think it's very clever because you've got the Twitter, Facebook, free speech debate, which of course is based on Trump's infamous tweet. Uh, when the looting starts, the shooting starts you 've now got the Apple hey trendy email service debate is Apple looting its customers by taking thirty percent when you stick yourself on the app store and of course, you have got uh, you have got the Amazon debate which is is amazon looting its business customers by basically watching what they sell and then putting out its own proprietary, its own brand products. And I'd love to hear your views on all of those. That's quite a big landscape.
1: I have, um, in fact, you can, you can, you can buy these online. You can buy them from Amazon, you can buy a catalog from Sears Roebuck or Montgomery Ward, which was a big kind of retailers, mass market retailers of the late 19th century. And there's 20 pages at the beginning boasting about their own label products because they sat and looked at what sold and then they made their own label. If you go into Tesco or Sainsbury's or I mean never mind John Lewis, but you know, you go into any big retailer, 5, 10, 20, 30% of what they sell is own label. Um, something like 35 to 40% of European groceries is own label for any of the big US chain retailers, so Target, Macy's, it's 20 to 30%. For Amazon as a matter of interest, it's about 1% at the moment. And so You know there's a sort of there's a trope to criticize tech companies to to criticize startups where you say you idiots, you've just invented x so you've just invented buses you just invented public transport you've just invented credit cards well here critics of amazon have just discovered retail like this is what retail does they look up they look at what sells they look at what's selling in their stores and then they make their own they compete with their suppliers and they use and then the answer is oh but amazon's using placement uh yes you do understand that re, that brands pay to be in the end caps. They pay for their placement in a supermarket, a retailer. There's nothing new here at all. Yes, they're using data. Yeah, that's what Walmart does. That's what Tesco does. Yes, they've got scale. Well, Walmart, Walmart is actually bigger than Amazon. Amazon has about 7% of US retail. Amazon, uh, Walmart has about 7 or 8% of US retail. Um, Amazon has about a third of US e-commerce. Yes, Walmart has about 20% of groceries, but like, This is an absolutely basic part of retail works. How retail works. It's been an absolutely basic part of how retail works for the last hundred years. So if you're going to ban own label products, you're going to completely upend the entire retail industry. Um, And so I afraid I have, you know, many of the arguments that people have around technology. I think there are kind of good arguments on both sides. I think this is one of the relatively few where there just isn't a good argument on the other side. I mean, there's a sort of there's a um, a narrative of how you should engage in 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 a a, in a debate, we should start by phrasing the other person's argument better than they could. I don't think I can phrase the argument here in any way. I just There's just no argument. Right, well... Um, so, that's Am- so that's the Amazon yeah, white label yeah. I just You've just blown
0: 20 million quid because obviously that will be the, the legal bill because I gather the commission is, is going to sue Amazon for uh, selling its own brand goods. Uh, but let's move... Uh, now you've dispatched that
1: five-year competition. Well, so just s- leap, leap I just—I was going to leap back on the sort of a, sort of a sort of, a, a sort of side observation here, which is, if you were going to construct an antitrust intervention to Amazon, what would be a really good, interesting structural intervention? We require them to offer wholesale access to their logistics and e-commerce. Guess what? They do. It's sixty percent of what's sold on Amazon. And the only reason <laughs> we're having this competition is that Amazon allows their competitors wholesale access to their platform. <music>
0: Right. Uh, next, Apple. is Apple a monopoly ripping off its customers? You can only really sell an app, obviously, the Android store, but through Apple, uh, and they take 30%, and they're having this current row with this very aptly well, named email service called Hey, which you can only get by invitation. Have you got an invitation to Hey?
1: I, I have many problems, but another email service <laughs> does not solve any of them. Um <laughs> So there's a bunch of interesting things to unpick here. The first is, just as a sort of an observation of fact, the vast majority of apps on the App Store are free, and Apple doesn't get any money from them. So Apple doesn't get any money when you buy stuff on Amazon or when you order an Uber. It doesn't get any money from Facebook um, or from Google, um, at least not from the App Store. Um, It's only if you want to sell stuff in the app that's a digital good. So it's quite narrowly defined. And in that situation, they say, well, instead of you asking people to fiddle around and enter in your credit card, we are going to make a payment system that's safe and trusted and secure, and you have to use that. Um, And so there's a sort of a logic to that that says like the whole point of the app store and kind of go up sort of three or four levels. um, Part of the kind of fundamental change that came with the iPhone was that it was an order of magnitude easier And it was an order of magnitude better in all sorts of different ways. Um, And one of the ways that it was easier and better was that that apps are safe. If you install an application onto your Windows PC or indeed onto your Mac, it can basically do whatever it wants. And this is why we had this explosion of malware on Windows PCs kind of 10, 15, 20 years ago, because Windows was open. Ironically, all the people who said Microsoft is evil thought it wasn't open enough. It turned out actually it was too open because once an app was on there and it had tricked your way onto your, your PC by telling you it was something else, then it could take control, watch what you were doing, pop up ads, steal all of your data, steal your contacts, email all your friends, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so you, it was a real lottery as to whether this app was was safe and you know a normal consumer should not have to be, make that judgment. They shouldn't have to be looking at an app and deciding whether it's safe. Yeah. And so a big part of the kind of fundamental step forward for the iPhone model was, app yeah, is safe. And so you don't have to work out what brand it comes from. You don't have to work with kind of recapping, well, is this come away? what country they're in, what are they really doing? What, how well have they written the privacy statement? No, it's safe. An app on your iPhone cannot read your contacts unless it asks you and you say yes. Right. it's not. They're not allowed to. It's they physically cannot read your contacts. They physically cannot get get to your um, your photos. They physically cannot track your location. And so that model of what's called technically called a sandboxed application model, and part of that is a curated app store where Apple don't let doesn't let stuff in in the first place that tries to do certain things. That I think is absolutely unambiguously good for consumers. and hugely beneficial to consumers. Um, on almost any basis whatsoever, and you know that is a hill that I would die on. However, third point, third point, I think was there was a story about um, Michael Foot making a speech. Works at a certain point, and, <laughs> and and thirteenthly, oh, that's um, right. <laughs> so th- I haven't kept count, but thirdly, um, there is that question of where the payment is, and. The problem is that there's a big kind of fuzzy gray area. So there's a bunch of stuff, which is kind of what Apple had in mind when they set the thing up, which was, yes, you should be using our payment system. You, you know, Fortnite should use our payment and not make 10-year-olds get their mother's credit card. It should go through, or their father's credit card. It should go through the Apple in our payment system. And we will charge yeah. you 30% for that. And that means that it's safe and you don't worry about giving random, it's part of the same safety point. I don't have to worry I'm giving this random developer a credit card. Apple's got my credit card. And I have complete control. It's safe. However, and so there's a, there's a very strong logic there. The problem is there's a, and it's equally very sensible for Apple to say, no, we never, never suggested that Amazon should pay us after 30, have to pay us 30% or Uber should have to pay us 30%. Um, that was always very clearly not in the scope. Now the fuzzy area has always been the bit in the middle where you have marginal cost and not very much margin, and Apple is asking for 30% off a, com- off a subscription or some service that may be on your iPhone and may also be off your iPhone. So the first benefit this came up almost over 10 years ago when Apple first launched the app store, first was, what about newspapers? So newspapers mm. wanted to sell a subscription in the app and Apple said, yeah, pay, you've got to use our own app payment to pay first 30%. Yeah. And that's more or less where they stuck um, except that they then offered us they flexed a bit and they said, well, if it's a subscription, it can step down to 15%. Now mm-hmm. bear in mind if you're doing credit card processing, you're paying anything from three to six percent anyway. So And the FT um, the FT did that workaround. They did that workaround which that you know basically everyone who'd worked on that project had to leave the company before they gave up and built an app. Um, so there, was sort of an <laughs> FT, there was a sort of an FT politics story there, and they've given up on that whole, whole approach completely. Um, and so this kind of comes around every now and then. So it came up with newspapers and magazines. Then it came up with, um, and the sort of thing was, well, if I've got the account off the app store, then I can use it on the app store. But if I can sign up on the app store, then I have to offer in app payment. And it is all kind of unsatisfactory. Um, then the place that has been sort of a, um, an on pass for the last like five years or something has been Spotify and Kindle. Because the problem with um, Street with music or ebooks is that there's a mar- margin, not there's marginal cost baked in. So Spotify have to give the record labels X percent of their top line. and that mm. leaves them less than 30% to run their business. So if they give Apple 30%, they have to give more than the money you're paying them. They have to give more than that than they're getting to yeah. they're getting to yeah. the record labels. And so Spotify doesn't have 30% to give up. That's the problem. They have marginal costs on that transaction. So the point is, you know, when, when Fortnite sells you a skin, Fortnite doesn't have to pay anybody else for that skin. Yeah. Whereas when Spotify or Kindle sell you a book or a subscription, they do have to give money to somebody else for every one of those subscriptions. And so we, they just can't do it. What is the trendy email service Hey complaining about?
0: Well, Those so hey,
1: so this is another one of these sort of weird grey areas, um, and it goes right back to the beginning because Apple launched this thing and said, well, if you're letting people subscribe outside, you have to let people subscribe inside. And Bloomberg came along and said, well, I don't know how many people know here that the actual Bloomberg business is a financial application that you run on your PC that costs mm. eighteen hundred dollars a month per yeah. seat. And if you're Goldman Sachs and you've got fifty thousand people using it, it's seventeen hundred dollars per month per person, <laughs> and so. <laughs> This is why Mike Bloomberg is very rich. Um, (laughs) The point is Bloomberg went to um, Apple and said, well, we want to put an app onto the iPhone. Are you going to ask us for 30% of $1,700 a month? And Apple went, ah, no, we didn't think of that. And said, no, you're you're good. You're good. And so there was this sort of separate thing, which was if like it was an expensive business service and it was being used off the platform then you didn't have to pay. And so you can use Slack. On your iPhone, you can without Slack paying paying them. You can use Gmail on your iPhone without Google have to pay them. And so, Hey came along and said, "Well, we're Gmail. We're no different to Gmail." And Apple said, "Yeah, no, you're um no, you're a consumer service," and they're right in the middle of that grey area. Um, now, to kind of having you know just given you like a potted history of you know ten over ten years of arguments about the Apple App Store. Um, I think pragmatically. Um, <laughs> I think that the, app, the unified app store where Apple has complete control of what can get onto your app is unambiguously good. I think if you look at the last five years of news and politics and say, hey, it would be really good if any random developer could do whatever the hell they want with your phone and your data, then you are an idiot. Um, you've been living in a hole. Like The whole message of the last five years is, of course, that shouldn't be possible. However, I also think that Apple is engaging in a degree of rent seeking around um, particularly Kindle and Spotify and a whole other class of things where there isn't an unambiguous user benefit to this, it would actually be significantly better for um, the user and also, of course, for the developer, but that goes without saying. And also, frankly, for Apple, if they were to flex a little bit more and say, actually, no, we're going to create another category in here. Um, Part of the problem for this is and then I'll kind of sort of pause for the rest and maybe go on to the third question, is that there's, <laughs> just an, a hu- there's a huge flow of apps coming through the App Store. And you have to create like, you know, they get looked at for five minutes. And yeah. so part of what you're getting is, you know, somebody who doesn't know very much about it and hasn't thought very deeply about it has got a flowchart on their screen. They look at the app and check the boxes and say, oh, no, computer says no. And yeah. Apple has not, app, I think Apple is going to need to flex on this. They're going to need to yeah. flex on on spotify and kindle they're going to need to flex on a bunch of other stuff interesting
0: now um so those are sort of two I, I called it regulation because it's about these are two sort of competition angles that are likely to to rear their heads by the european commission which recently got turned over on its decision not to let o2 and three merge back in the day so I'm not quite sure how focused they are on getting competition right but would uh i can You see you want to go backwards but we're going forwards benedict because we're going to now look at twitter's decision to moderate if you like president trump over his when the looting starts the shooting starts Mm. and your very fair point i think which bizarrely people like nick Clegg don't make when they're interviewed on the radio for facebook which is that if the president of the united states says something like that uh, you don't censor it. It's news, and the New York Times didn't censor it, and the London Times didn't censor it. They reported it as news about an extraordinary thing said by the President of the United States. But suddenly, everyone says, "Well, Facebook should censor it, and if they don't, we, a Facebook employee, disgruntled Facebook employee, is going to work it, walk out."
1: So I'd make kind of, I suppose, a couple of general observations here. Um, One of them is that the tech industry has gone, and this is a very general observation, the tech industry has gone from being exciting and interesting, but actually pretty small, to being Mm. systemically important to society in a very short period, like five to 10 years. And so when Bill Gates was on every magazine cover, Microsoft sold accounting tools to big companies, it was exciting. Mm. But it was not part of most people's lives. Most people didn't have a computer. And if they did, they certainly weren't using it five hours a day, 10 hours a day. Like The yeah. killer stat here, I think, is that in 2017, 80% of new relationships in the USA started online. Like Online dating <laughs> was, so 40%. Online dating was 40% of new relationships in the USA in 2017. 2018, 2008, last year, it was probably over 50%. And so this stuff has gone from being peripheral to being a basic part of society. And that means that there's sort of two two, two consequences of that. One of them is um, we connected everyone, so that meant we connected all the bad people, all of our bad instincts. All of society's problems Mm -hmm. now get expressed in software in the same way that they got expressed in media, say, in the past. Um, The other is... Um, that this has happened so quickly that we don't really understand it. And so we were in it, we, particularly last year, I think we were very clearly in a kind of a moral panic. Um, and the sort of the character of the panic was sort of, it was, it, it's rather like kind of looking at cars and saying, well, you've got to make cars that don't crash and where the gasoline doesn't burn. And the hmm. engineers say, well, we can't. And then the response is, well, you're going to have to. It's democracy. Yeah. Like, well, yes, but we can't invent new physics. And (laughs) that's been some of the conversation around from technology that, um, you know, kind of extend the car metaphor here, you know, all of society's problems now get expressed in software. And so we will regulate it because we regulate things that are systemically important and that create problems. Yeah. We regulate food, we regulate aircraft, we regulate the oil industry. We regulate cars, but if you talk about regulating cars, well, we can go to GM and say, you have to make the cars safer and reduce emissions but you can't tell them to make the cars perfectly safe you can't and you also can't tell them to solve parking parking is not actually a mechanical engineering problem that's for town councils you can't tell them to do a congestion charge you can't say hey bank robbers are using cars what are you going to do about that and they say yeah Yeah. well that's we agree that's a problem but that's not really a mechanical engineering problem and i think that's and the kind of the 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 takeaway from the, the, the sort of metaphor is like there's not a problem with tech There's two or three dozen different issues, some of which are engineering questions, many of which are not, many of which are national or local or international, they're things where different countries have different attitudes, and yet you have one company in California that's being told to do X in France and not X in Germany, you have a lot of complexity to this, which doesn't lend itself well to a book title or to moral panic. Um, It is, I mean, as you'll know from your kind of your former life, that kind of is how policy works. There are very few problems where there's like a simple answer and you can just do that and you've solved it. This is what, of course, Donald Trump doesn't want to understand. There isn't an answer. You just have to pick which things you want to do and which trade-offs you want. And so we're kind of having to wrestle through all of that complexity in like three years or five years and not the 75 years it took to decide that seatbelts should be compulsory. So that's sort of the general problem. The specific problem is... um, content moderation um the stuff that we all agree is illegal and should be illegal and everyone agrees on this like child exploitation it's yeah. not actually possible to find all child exploitation but you can try hard and you can create a law yeah. that says you have to try and it's yeah. actually relatively easy to agree on what child exploitation is as well which you know again back to my point about apple like you know, you've given somebody you know who's not paid very much they've got to look at 50 in the next hour, give them a flowchart. Well, child exploitation, you know, is relatively, you know, the the, the, the problems around that are relatively easily defined. Um, Should you be allowed to say that? Well, you know, to Nick Clegg's point, you know, you know, what does Nick Clegg feel about looking at something that a leading politician in, in Malaysia or Ruritania or Indonesia has said? Should Nick Clegg be deciding if that's a permissible part of political discourse? Yeah. i mean there's this sort of classic framing that you know about facebook which is facebook has too much power and also it should take away it should silence people i don't like <laughs> yeah. do you i mean you know, i think do, uh, do you actually want product managers in menlo park deciding the character yes. of political speech in the usa no, because but, but they mean, don't they yeah, don't want in, to yeah therein
0: <laughs> lies the answer which is uh, not an answer per se but you know, I think the debate has moved on in the sense that, you know, when I was involved five or six years ago, if you even debated these issues, you were accused of not understanding tech and being a censor. Um, and now I think the debate has moved on to Facebook saying, we don't want to do this, government should do this. And your point, which I agree with, is obviously that government can do this, but it can only do you know, in the real world, you can only achieve so much. You have to be realistic about what is genuinely the responsibility, potentially the responsibility for Facebook, and given it's if if it's that if that is its responsibility, what it can do about it.
1: Yeah. So I think there's, I mean, I, I I'm kind of glad you you raised that point about the shift in the narrative dialogue because I think there's there's sort of two quite different there were two di- quite different reasons why Silicon Valley would say no, and the first yeah. is it's not physically possible. Yeah. The second is we don't think we should be doing that Exactly. I th- or that we don't think that should be happening at all. Yeah. And the shift, you know, the shift in the last, there's been two changes in the last five years. One of them has been a shift in the understanding of the character of the problem, which is to my point, this stuff went from being a cool messaging app to being systemically important to society. And so one understanding of how real the, and what the kind of real nature of the problem has changed in the valley and outside. Um. So there, was a, yeah. there is now an absolute agreement. Yes, you have to do stuff. The second yeah. change has been that machine learning makes it fundamentally different to say you have to catch everybody who is doing X, because now you actually can, at least in principle, look at every single post. I mean, Facebook has—I think the last number was—they have a hundred billion items of content posted a day. So they know, the global SMS. Ridiculous. I mean, the global SMS system I think peaked at something like twenty-five billion messages a day, and nobody went to Vodafone or France Telecom and said, "You've got to scan every SMS in case criminals are talking about stuff." Exactly. You know, nobody says to Vodafone or British Telecom or at and people should not be allowed to say that vaccines don't work in text messages. And yet so, somehow, and, yet somehow and, and in a sense, it wasn't physically possible. Now it kind of is physically possible. But that kind of gets me to this other layer of complexity, which is, well, when you say take it down, what do you mean? Do you mean front page of YouTube? Yes, we can kind of agree on that. What if I say that in a WhatsApp message to one person? Why? Is, yeah. What if I say it in a WhatsApp group with 10 members, 50 members, 100 members, a Facebook group with five members, 5,000 members? What does takedown mean exactly? And so it's back to my complexity point. You know, it's easy for Sasha Baron Cohen to say, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is a fascist and he likes yeah. Nazis. But like. Come on, you guys, you're both Jewish. So can you, but but you also, neither of you are yes. 17. You're not, you're not 17 anymore. Like, this shit yes. is hard. Um, yes. I mean, to the, the, to the, the Facebook, I mean, there's the sort of two... Do you think intra- Do you think people should still advertise on Facebook? This is the latest attack. <sighs> Grow up. So I think there's two challenge, There's sort of two kind of interesting challenges. There's, there's a bunch of interesting challenges here. One of them is, to, to my point, what exactly do you mean by takedown? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there here you get to, well, should you amplify it or not? Which I think is, yeah. is slightly questionable. The other side of this, well, is, see, so bad advertising. All right, so let's just kind of walk through some scenarios. Um, Trump says something, the New York Times reports it in the headline. So should that be blocked from Facebook? Exactly. Should, should Facebook block the New York Times story? Ah, exactly. okay, we didn't mean that. Second problem, as I said, I say it on my homepage. What if I say it in a text message? Which do you block? Do you block all of it, really? What exactly does that mean? Um, Third question is um, this idea that you can say it if you post it, but you can't say it if you advertise. Fine. So I've got, I'm a viciously unpleasant populist politician with 20 million followers. I can say something and my 24 million followers can see it and they can repost it. I am green. I am a new politician. I'm a competing candidate. I'm running for office in Venezuela. I don't have 20 million followers. Can I buy advertising so that people can hear about me? Ah, no, no political advertising allowed. So when you ban political advertising, what you're actually saying is um, whoever can get the most organic reach, which means either incumbents or the most inflammatory people, they can say whatever they want. But nobody's allowed to say say anything if they're paying for it, which makes no sense at all. You know, to ban political advertising is simply to privilege populists and incumbents. Well, exactly. I
0: mean, I think um, what I love about that we've covered an enormous amount of ground over quite a long period of time, Um, but it's been fascinating to listen to you. I mean, I think clearly as I try and sort of wrap this up, I'll say something banal and staggeringly obvious. Uh, which is that obviously, you know, the dominance of tech means that politicians are to a certain extent running around like headless chickens. So people talk about breaking up Facebook in a way they never talked about breaking up General Motors. They talk about attacking uh, Apple's monetization strategy in ways they haven't talked about attacking
1: uh,
0: supermarkets. Uh, Mm. Exactly. Uh, And and that's always been the way with tech. I mean, I remember, you know, the whole data privacy debate. I kept saying, I used to say to people when I was minister, look, Ten years ago, Tesco could have told you six weeks before it happened that you were going to get a divorce based on your shopping habits. You know, we've given up our data for years. Um, But it is interesting that I, I also, I always like to say that some of the motivation to regulate tech is based on patriotic sort of national characteristics. You know, the French want to kill big tech because it's American. And the Germans don't like big tech because understandably they're obsessed by privacy having been once West Germany and East Germany. But uh, I, there is no easy solution to this except clearly politicians chasing headlines and trying to wrestle with these extremely complex nuanced problems is not a happy combination.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think the point I made earlier about the speed with which one has to adapt to this stuff is important. Because when you're discussing a supermarket, we kind of understand how supermarkets work. And, you know, we understand that if somebody kind of came exactly. around and said super, supermarkets have to start selling cars and also they need to have, you know, um, yeah. a day, every supermarket should have a daycare center and it should be 45 stories high. And like, people would kind of understand you have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. But people make kind of those kind of statements about Apple and people don't really know enough to understand. Wait, that doesn't really make sense. Um, so I think that's part of the problem is we haven't like got a fully internalized sense of what the real kind of what the underlying kind of engineering problems might be. I think the other I mean, issue. I, yeah, I mean, I think the other, you, you mentioned breaking up. I think breaking up is displacement. I mean, I sort of won't make a political yeah. point here, but you know, uh, now proceed to do it, which is that I think breaking breaking up reminds me a lot of Brexit, in that it's it's a great slogan and it sounds simple, exactly. until you start asking questions like, well, a, what exactly would you break up into, and what problem would that yeah. actually solve? Um, yeah, you know, to the to the point, you know. Google and Facebook overcharging advertisers is an antitrust question, but no one cares about that. Teenage girls looking yeah. at self harm content on Instagram. Well, if you change who owns Instagram, that's not going to solve that problem. Exactly. Uh, sorry, I mean, the real solutions are much harder than that. They don't make good, good book titles. Yeah, exactly. And I do I do. think. I mean, I think politicians are entitled to ask the questions.
0: And they're entitled to ask reasonable questions. And I, I always used to, you know, as the person wandering around the supermarket, I always used to I still find it strange that you can, say, the most vile, you know, issue rape threats to people on Twitter, even prominent politicians, and you get no redress, just in a basic, I mean, it sounds banal in the context, a sort of basic customer service point. But then, of course, one is dealing with volumes of this stuff, and we only see a microcosm of it, and we think we're in the pub, and somebody's shouting this vile stuff, and the publican should deal with it, when the publican has actually 300 million customers to deal with. But anyway... We could go on and on, which is not meant to sound like this is tedious. It's been absolutely fascinating. And I really thank you for taking the time to talk, in my view, an enormous amount of sense. And I think if only, if only one politician, Benedict, listens to this discourse, <laughs> you would have made a difference. That was wonderful. Thank you so much thank for you. being the first guest on my podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Evasive View, a production of Kindred Media.